the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, hello there. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. Delighted to have you join us on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Carol, a nationally known gerontologist, she serves as chair of the board of the National Council on Aging and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And we've got a very special guest coming up in just a few moments. In fact, uh, when is an oxymoron a paradox? Wow. I have no idea. When is an oxymoron a paradox? Yes, loving life while caregiving. Exactly. Maria Sirwa is going to be talking to us. And, you know, I, I've heard her speak before, and she really um, has a positive spin. And I'm loving all of these positive messages about loving life and caregiving. And just, you know, caregiving's not all doom and gloom. No, it's not. And she'll be joining us in just a couple of moments. But first, I want to talk with you, Carol, about something you came up with, which is the other good thing about vacations more than just getting away. Well, I found first. I found the article because it had a really pretty picture of a beach and palm trees on it. It's gorgeous. Um, and then I saw the headline that said, "Vacations relax you on a cellular level." Ooh. So you know we we like vacations. Um, and in the news and and talking to people, you hear a lot about mindfulness and meditation. And it turns out that if you're not into mindfulness and meditation, that vacations have the same effect. They actually change you on a cellular level. They sent people on vacation. I would have volunteered for this particular, you know, forget the electroshock therapy, you know, and taking the pills. Yes, I'll sign up for the study that sends me on vacation to someplace in the Caribbean. um, And they give me a choice of with meditation vacation or without meditation vacation. And what they found is looking at the stressors in the blood and looking at the cells of the people who did it is that vacation alone. Um, can sweep away all of those horrible stress hormones that, you know, get in your blood and, and, and it's really healthier for you to be on vacation. Uh, the same as meditation. But if you do, if you maintain the meditation routine after vacation, then the de-stressing is going to last a little bit longer. There is a lot of emphasis, certainly on mindfulness. You hear it everywhere. Well, and, and that's it. But, you know, the bottom line is, you know how you feel feel good on vacation and you feel good for at least 10 minutes when you come back from vacation? You know, there's a reason for that. It really is physically good for you. So all of my staff who don't use your vacation time, because I always do, you know, go out and use your vacation. All of you listening, use your vacation. If this you is where uh, many Europeans, the French in particular, understand you need to get away. You need to get away. You absolutely do need to get away. Um, and, and for a lot of caregivers, maybe you can't. So um, look up the picture of the beach. If you can't oh, get away, incredible. then you can just look at a lovely beach scene. I have a friend, my uh, wife's cousin, Len, who works for a major corporation here. Uh, he gets six weeks of vacation every year. Which sounds pretty and darn push good. push him to take it. Pretty darn good to yeah, me. That would be pretty good. Yes. And then, of course, he gets pressured when he comes back for not having finished his projects. But such is life in the corporate world, right? That's right. You take that vacation. vacation darned if you do and darned wow. if you don't. So tell me a little bit about it. And I've, I've really wondered about this. The purpose of sleep. Is there a reason other than we're tired? You know, over the years, and this is from the New York Times, people have asked that question. And so some thought it was to save energy. We need to conserve energy. Um, Some thought it was, you probably, I think we even talked about it, supposedly we have all this brain cellular waste. So that's when the garbage man comes by and sweeps out all of the old Mm -hmm. dead stuff in our brains. Ah. My favorite one was (laughs) that it's left over from the, you know, caveman days where we're lying still uh, and sleeping so animals won't eat us. It's an animal thing. To not get eaten is to lie still and sleep. Wow. Yeah. So, obviously, this article is not about that. 
<laughs> this article is about a study that says, you know, they looked at the brain while people were asleep and bodily functions while you're asleep. And I didn't realize how many things change when you're sleeping. Your body acts like it's doing whole different things than it does when you're awake in the daytime. And so they think that sleeping is to help you forget all the stuff that you really don't need to remember. I mean, think about all the stuff that you just read on your cell phone, all of the news that's been blasting on your radio, everything that you saw as you were driving to work. You don't remember what you saw driving to the studio today. You've passed it a million times. You probably couldn't tell me how many people you passed standing at a bus stop or walking down the street as opposed to driving. I had a meeting a couple weeks ago with a guy whose office is on Broadway in, in San Antonio, a building I have been by 80 million times at least. I never knew it was there. Never knew it. Never paid Great attention to it. Great big building. Right. And so your brain, you know, is telling you this stuff is not important. We don't want you to waste energy and brain power. So um, all of the little synapses that help you uh, remember things and use the information that you have in your head, um, apparently when you sleep, and this is kind of like cellular waste, but it's a little Wipes bit different. It it's it's like it's pruning your your little neural pathways in your brain are getting pruned, literally pruned. Um, to not have to remember all of these things because you don't need them. So then, let's say you witness a crime you didn't know you witnessed. Uh, Through hypnosis, I wonder, can they bring that back? Well, heck, I don't know. (laughs) Well, I didn't expect you to know. I don't know either. It's a conundrum. (laughs) Well, I know, especially if it just got pruned. Yes. I don't know if you saw it. What was that, the cartoon where they had the emotions in there in the little head? I mean, and they, I don't know. I I forget the name of it. Upside, inside out, upside down. Oh, some child knows the name of this movie about emotions. Anyway, you know, you picture some little truck coming by and pruning your emotions and pruning your neurons, and there you've got some important memory that you're supposed to remember, and now you can. It's gone. But anyway, sleeping is a way to forget in a smart way to forget. Um, but the question is, is is this a function of sleeping or is it the function of sleeping? Is the entire purpose of sleeping is to forget? That's a good point. By the way, if you've just joined us, this portion is brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. And so now you know when you go to sleep... Uh, it's okay to forget stuff. It is. You're supposed to because you really would go into overload if you literally remembered everything you saw, heard, or did every single day. I don't know. I think your head would explode. Now, I'm going to pay very close attention, not that I don't pay attention to everything you talk about, but the seven daily practices that are bad for your heart, and I wonder how many of these I do. Well, this comes from the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Health Program, which I didn't know Barbara Streisand had a did not. heart health program. Um, but seven practices that you, seven things you do every day. So number one, you know, sitting is the new smoking. So what they're saying now is that even if you exercise every day, if you sit in front of a computer at work, and you sit in front of the TV at night to relax, you're actually undoing all the good of the exercise that you got. Wow. So being sedentary, which means mostly sitting, is not good for you. So it's okay to watch TV, but now I'm afraid you're going to have to do a treadmill. You're going to have to walk around the room. You can't just sit on the couch. All right. So that's number one. Yeah, I'm guilty of uh, Guilty of that one. Number two, eating red meat. And the... Actually, the science is starting to say pretty soon they're just going to say, forget the red meat, especially bacon, especially ham, especially steak. But, you know, plant-based diets, we're just not supposed to have the red meat. Not I, I don't think I like this one. Yeah. All right. So number three, if you don't sleep well, if you toss and turn, you wake up, you have to go to the bathroom 20 times, you know, unrestful sleep is actually very bad for your heart. So if you're somebody that isn't sleeping well, you really should talk to your doctor about it. Um, seven hours sleep is the sweet spot for cardiovascular health. And now you can get things on your little watcher, little tools that will tell you how much restful sleep you're getting. So you need seven hours of restful sleep. I didn't want to know, so I didn't activate that app. Well, now this one may surprise you. Number four is you fail to floss your teeth. And this article doesn't know why, but there is a correlation to heart health. People who floss their teeth live floss. have better heart health. I floss. You you live to floss. I live oh, well, to floss. There you go. So you're in good shape. On that one. Um, five is you don't know the you don't know your numbers. So you should know your blood pressure and you should know your cholesterol count. 
because you can't feel high blood pressure and you can't feel high cholesterol. And medications for high cholesterol will save you from a heart attack, Last period. Last blood pressure check me the other day was 114 over 58. Wow, and you were still awake? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a runner. I, wow. I can't tell you why. <laughs> wow, well, that's very outstanding. So the next one is... Um, the salt shaker, okay, if you don't have high blood pressure, you don't have to worry about the salt in your food. But if you do have high blood pressure or you have borderline high blood pressure, you really need to stay away from the salt. Number seven is something I think our guest would agree with. If you, the glass is always half empty for you, that pessimistic streak is bad for your health. It's bad for your heart. That's Dr. Maria Suha, who's joining us in just a couple of moments, talking about the paradox of loving life and caregiving and how important it is to be upbeat and resilient. That's right. So if you're stressed and anxious and depressed, you've got to get some exercise and do something else. Um, the, now, the last one, this one we're all going to like. Go out and have a cup of coffee or two or three or four. There is something about coffee that's good for your heart. And studies have shown that people that drink up to nine cups of coffee a day, I didn't think you were supposed to have that much caffeine, actually have good heart health. Go figure. It's a study done by the coffee manufacturers I guess so, of yeah. Brought to you by yeah. Folgers or Starbucks. Wow. That's good to know if that uh, is a double-blind yeah, so pick study. And, pick, and, pick and choose a couple of these habits. You know, all seven. If you can't do all seven, just go out and do, have a cup of coffee. So what if you've got <laughs> four of the seven wrong? Uh, well, then wow. you have choices to make because <laughs> lifestyle you. is a choice. Thank you, doctor. Finally, coping with caregiver anger. Well, this particular column, I read the column, and then I realized we've had Elaine Sanchez on the program before. Um, she uh, had written a book, and I'm blanking on the name of it, uh, Letters from Madeline, right. Chronicles of a, Care- of a Caregiver. So I remember... Um, Elaine in her talk and she was talking she was giving some examples of anger and people what people have done to get the anger out she talked about a woman in Idaho that when she you know her brothers and sisters would not help her care for her 92 year old dad and so once a week she'd load her shotgun and just shoot gophers out in her yard that was her stress reduction I personally you know if if that if you have gophers just don't shoot other things with that, for gun, with that gun. The, the, the funny one was a woman who said for her uh, to get rid of anger, she just needed two dozen eggs. Because at 3.56 every afternoon, there was a train that came by the train tracks. And if it was a short train, she threw the eggs really fast at the short train. And if it was a long train, she would try to hit the logos on each car. She'd kind of wow. lob them in there. And I don't know if the... Um, conductor of the train, the driver of the train, ever saw this woman pelting his train with eggs, but apparently they never stopped her and they never arrested her because she would do it absolutely every day. Um, but the, the whole point is, is you need a release for your anger. Um, you know, if you, if you get enough sleep, you don't eat the junk food, uh, you get out and exercise, um, you know, get some respite, get some help. Maybe you won't feel as angry, but if you are feeling angry, hey, Find something you do that gets gets it out of you because it's not eggs. good to hold it in. Buy a dozen eggs and go pelt something. Dr. Maria Suhua joins us in just a moment right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 AM, The Answer. Mm-hmm. 
Well, let it be written, we promise, and we deliver. A very special guest joining us now on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host. And the topic that we're going to address now uh, involves a whole lot of aspects, not only of caregiving, but the paradox of loving life while caregiving and more. Joined by Dr. Maria Siwa, who is a clinical psychologist, has worked in the intersection of psychology and well-being. That's an interesting place to find yourself. And I want to uh, pass on a special thank you to Dr. Tova Rubin, who put us together. Maria, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Talk to us a little bit because there's a, an interesting workshop and uh, a, a, an evening event that you're going to be involved in directly. Uh, tell us about how you got involved as a clinical psychologist in these aspects of caregiving. During my uh, doctoral program in my final year, I was fortunate enough to be placed at a, a teaching hospital in Boston called Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and I worked for a year there with children facing life-threatening illnesses, cancers, and other blood diseases. And one of the things that became clear pretty quickly was that there were certain families who did very well under the potential stress of losing their child and other families who didn't. And I began to ask myself, what is it that those families who did well anyway, what did they know? And what was that? And it turned out to be this whole field of study called resilience, which is about adapting helpfully to stress or trauma or loss. Um, so that, that really engendered my passion for the topic. And you've got a book coming out soon, A Short Course in Happiness After Loss in Other Difficult Times, and Every Day Counts, Lessons in Love, Faith, and Resilience. What is it about resilience, and uh, can you buy it in a bottle? <laughs> God, that is such a good question. No, <laughs> you cannot buy it in a bottle. Um, resilience is really a series of, or a set of capacities within each person that enables us to deal healthfully with whatever life has, has thrown our way. And it turns out all of us are resilient to some degree or another, and all of us can bolster our resilience at any time, even under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. So it's really a set of tools and perspectives that, that bring us to a place where we have inner strength and clarity and a sense of what lifts us even as we're struggling. So I heard you say um, that there are tools because there's been a lot of talk about resilience recently, a lot in the educational space where they're teaching children to be resilient. And so it's something that they can learn. Um, in By looking at your book or, or these tools that you're talking about, can we become more resilient? Without question. For example, one of the tools that is being talked about heavily that's being applied in school systems but also in organizations is the notion of grit and how we elevate grit. Grit is perseverance over extraordinarily difficult lengths of time toward a meaningful goal. So we can help ourselves as students and, and as adults, first of all, become clear about what's meaningful to us, what's worth our time and energy, become aware of what supports that investment in time and energy, what distracts from it, um, who supports us and who doesn't. There, there are a number of perspectives and practices that really can elevate grit. I can remember not too many years ago working in San Antonio at the Winston School of San Antonio, which specializes in helping youngsters with learning disabilities. And one of the things we often talked about is that those kids who have been challenged by any number of learning disabilities uh, have succeeded when there's resilience. And often that's tracked to a charismatic adult who played a role in their life. Well, we do know that having the presence of helpful adults is absolutely uh, powerfully positive for, for all of us. Um, if you are a child, having a, a mentor, a teacher, a leader who, who cares deeply in you or a parent, if you're an adult, having a mentor, a coach, a therapist, or a set of friends who are supportive and helpful is ex extremely important. We don't do life well alone. We do better when we're connected, and in terms of resilience, we do better when we're connected wisely to people who can actually help us nourish us and sustain us. You know, one of the ways I think about caregiving isn't just the hands-on 
caregiving, for example, someone who is dying or someone who is ill, but it's also those of us who are single moms or those of us who are um, taking care of, as you mentioned, young ones who have either learning disabilities or physical developmental delay, you know, the, the sort of chronic daily pressure of caring for others um, and having connection to healthful mentors, guides, experts, and, and or friends is extremely important. Well, I liked what you said about we don't, we don't do stress very well alone. We don't do caregiving. We're not really supposed to be alone. Um, and that sometimes that's one of the hardest thing in working with caregivers is somehow they feel like they should be doing it themselves. They should be going it alone. Yeah, I love that you brought that up, Carol. There are a number of myths that we, we tend to live with when we find ourselves in a um, caregiving situation, particularly one that, that's chronic. One is that we all ought to be able to figure out how to do it perfectly. That's a myth. Two, that we should do it, you know, like just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get through it every day and not, not show how much pain or strain we feel. Um, and this, the third myth is that other people matter more than we do. It's absolutely true that those we're caring for matter. And, you know, from the perspective of resilience, we matter as well. And, in fact, the most resilient of us try to live a beautiful balance between nourishing themselves and nourishing others. Well, um, in looking at your bio and and hearing what you're saying, um, there's... You have to keep on, would you agree, or it sounds like you would agree, that that there's living to be done while caregiving. We don't put everything on hold and just enter this world of caregiving, that that life has to still go on. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. You know, one of the the tunnels that we can sometimes find ourselves in when when we're caregiving, you know, especially for someone we love dearly and deeply, is that the world shrinks to become defined by whatever they are suffering. And yet, paradoxically, the most resilient of us are those of us who are able to sort of enter that tunnel, offer the best that we can of ourselves, and pull ourselves out and remember that the world is always larger than any one moment, any one diagnosis, any one um, struggle. That's a very difficult path for some of us to navigate, and that's why it's so important to have shows like yours and and these kinds of opportunities to really dive deeply into the tools. We're going to talk more about uh, these questions. I just want to remind those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, We're talking with Dr. Maria Suwa about uh, issues involved in not only caregiving, but the paradox of loving life while caregiving. I want to come back to what you just said about the world world shrinking uh, to whatever it is you're focused on. Uh, we had a guest on a week or so ago who said that after her husband had a stroke, uh, she and her husband didn't want to be defined by stroke. You hear cancer patients saying, no, I, I'm not cancer. I'm me, and I'm much bigger than that. Uh, how do you reach that point? Well, often it, it does take time to get there because initially when the diagnosis comes, of course, there's a, a sudden shock. It's like a concussion, and it's hard to think or see clearly. So one of the ways to that bigger perspective is to follow the path of, of others who have traveled ahead of you in that, in that same direction and who've done well. So to look for role models and mentors. The second is to to learn what you can about what resilience actually means and, and how to how to build it within yourself tools such as mindfulness, integrating happiness, uh, leveraging your character strengths, practicing grit. They're all crucial to the development of resilience. And the third thing that, that is often helpful is to take a moment and look back at times, previous times when life was extraordinarily hard and ask yourself, what worked well then in terms of developing a larger perspective and how can I bring that forward now? Well, so in other words, resilience isn't just about what the psychologists say or the researchers have to say. It's also about our own inner wisdom about what nourishes us and strengthens us. So does that kind of a perspective help us um, in a situation, let's say, like with Alzheimer's disease, where the caregiving experience or, or a child with a disability, it's not going away anytime soon. It could be 10 years. It could be lifelong um, that you're going to be in a caregiving role. I mean, how do you run this marathon? Right. So that brilliant question. You you run the marathon by by breaking it down into manageable chunks. You break it down into days, and some days you break it down into moments. 
um, our life is lived in moments. And, and really, that what we have control over in terms of what we can shape is predominantly the day we've been given, who we are in the day we've been given. I remember a mother in particular who had a child with a severe a case of cerebral palsy. This is going to be a lifetime caregiving role for her relative to this child. And she also had other children, and she had a husband, and she had a, a passion, a career. And her, her first sort of entry into that tunnel was to constantly say to herself, I don't have time for myself. I don't have time to take care of myself. It's, it has to be, all be about my, my son and my other children. And when I uh, sort of pushed her on that, what began, began to become clear to her was, she actually could integrate some of these tools with her son and therefore bring, you know, reduce that time pressure and have it become something that practicing gratitude, for example, to elevate positivity, they could do that together. The other thing she began to understand is she was always going to feel as if she didn't have enough time, but that that actually wasn't always true. Her husband was helpful. She had caregivers who could come and help relieve her. The question was, could she take advantage of that free time in such a way that she strengthened herself or lifted herself? So the marathon um, role of caregiving is absolutely real and valid, and it is best done just as runners run a marathon, step by step or day by day. And you have to be willing to consider the possibility that life can be rich and wonderful and bountiful and beneficent, even in the presence of something like cerebral palsy in your in your son. Now, stick with us. We're going to come right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on 9:30 a.m. The Answer Caregiver SOS on air, talking with Dr. Maria Suwa, and we're going to talk more about caregiving, the paradox of loving it and living it. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Delighted to have you with us. All of our shows are available, by the way, on podcast. And if you want to check them out, just go to caregiversos.org, and you can find all the podcasts for Caregiver SOS on air. This program can be heard live on the radio. Well, live because we pre-taped it, but it sounds live. You can catch us on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m., on 9.30 a.m., the answer. Uh, Maria, we were talking about uh, some of the challenges, certainly, that caregivers face, uh, talking about building, developing resilience. I want to talk, if you don't mind, about a couple of events that are coming up March 2nd and March 3rd here in San Antonio. Uh, you're giving a special presentation the night of March seventh, March 2nd at 7 p.m. What is that all about? That one is about the paradox of loving life while caregiving. Um, you know, one of the dangers for caregivers is they, they forget to sort of keep their own life in view as they're taking care of another person. And it turns out those of us who are able to navigate the the length of time often caregiving requires of us well, meaning that we, we, we remain emotionally and psychologically and physically healthy ourselves, those of us who do that well, hold on to the fact that their life is meaningful just as it is the life and the well-being of the person they're caring for. I think one of the angriest caregivers we ever had on the show was someone whose attitude was, I have to just disappear. I have to give up everything. There's no way for me to care for my mother without devoting 100% of my time and energy to what she wants and what she needs. And this is a very angry person. Yes, and it's a, it is, you know it's a, it is understandable to feel anger when life has suddenly sent you a you know a bolt of lightning like that, and we do know, however, we being those who studied positive psychology and resilience and mind body medicine, we do know that many of us have been able to extricate ourselves from that anger by investing back in. The thing, to the things that bring us joy, the things that bring us serenity, the things that um, make us laugh, the things that create meaning in our lives separate from caring for the person who's ill. You know, it, it, it doesn't serve us to lose ourselves in caregiving because then eventually what tends to set in is weariness, a sense of being burdened, like the caller you just mentioned, uh, depression, and sometimes ill health as well as ill mental health. You know, we get sort of crazy in having lost ourselves. 
Tell us about the workshop then that follows on March 3rd. Friday, we have a full-day workshop it's from 9 to 4.30 about resilience under stress, the art and science of rising. And I'll be in bringing in the research from positive psychology to provide a sense of guidance about how we leverage what's already good and strong within us, how we integrate tools and perspectives that elevate grit and our character strengths and happiness. It's, what's fascinating is that it turns out that those of us who practice optimism and lean toward what makes us happy do better in caregiving situations. And who should attend these? Um, you know, we, we're inviting professionals who work in the, in the field, the caregiving field, as well as those who counsel. Um, adults, also anyone who, who's practicing caregiving at the t- at, in the moment is more than welcome. Well, I heard you mention mind, body, spirit, uh, you know, health and, and well-being and wellness. Yeah, and for um, most of the history of, of medicine, at least in the United States, you know, there, there hasn't really been a real connection between the health side of the house and the, the mental health side of the house and the, the spirit, you know, the energy and all of the, you know, the other uh, psychological side. Are we doing any better than we used to in terms of making those connections, getting our head on top of our body and connecting to our spirit? Oh, we're absolutely doing better, both in the medical field, also in business. I mean, one of the the uh, blossoming areas of um, uh, consultation that is evolving in corporate America and, and all over the world is the investment in mindfulness practices for, for leaders and for their teams. Um, we are absolutely doing better. What's become clearer and clearer is that as that what we think affects how we feel, what we feel affects our bodies, what's happening in our bodies affects how we feel and think, and it, it affects our sense of spirit. And I use spirit in the in the broadest definition, you know, the broadest sense, which is, you know, that which brings us connection to something larger than ourselves and a sense of meaning and significance to life. And all of those elements are absolutely integrated. Here's one of the interesting things about this notion of uh, separating mind and body is that the root of the word whole, to be whole, actually comes from the Latin how, which means health. You know, that health actually is wholeness, is, is integration. And so um, thank, I'm so grateful that we're moving in the direction of understanding that helping elevate our feelings and and how we think and how we take care of our body only will serve all of the other domains. I want to jump on the title for uh, your evening uh, presentation because folks who are listening may say to themselves, it clearly is a paradox, uh, loving life while caregiving. How do you do that? So one of the things that I will talk about is this notion of being broken and whole at the same time. And an image I like to use comes from a Japanese art form called kintsugi or kintsukurai, which is you take a broken vessel and you repair it with gold lacquer. This is an art form that developed in the 1500s as a way to both not only physically repair the vessel so that its purpose, its intention was still intact, but also to bring beauty and alignment. In other words, that to demonstrate that we can be scarred and beautiful. We can be a little nutty and wonderful. We can be broken in certain places and still maintain a sense of wholeness and purpose and integrity. Um, so that's the paradox, is, is, is admitting, yeah, you know, I'm not doing great. I'm angry all the time. I'm not sleeping well. I'm, I'm upset with the person I'm taking care of. I'm, I treat them harshly, and then I hate myself for it. You know, I'm broken in these ways, or I'm a little bit nutty in these ways, and, and I have the potential for living more deeply into a life where I feel better about myself and I'm bringing more good to my own life and to this person. So holding on to both sides of that paradox is what we'll be talking about. Well, that's a good point because we often find that uh, the caregiver over time can actually uh, perpetrate violence 
uh, and psychological trauma on the care recipient growing out of the anger they're feeling for the situation they find themselves in. Right, and that, you know, that is absolutely the last thing any of us would want in ourselves to experience and also certainly to witness or, or give rise to. And given that fundamental assumption that we, you know, we want to do well, we want to be good people, we, we want to do less harm and bring more good. And so given that that is true, then it really does behoove us to learn what we can to support ourselves as if we matter as well as the person we're taking care of. Well, you, on the, in the workshop, talk a little bit about some of the kinds of exercises that you might be using to help us, you know, kind of build resilience or access that optimistic spirit. We're going to be talking about character strengths, for example, those qualities within us, such as creativity and generosity and judgment and perseverance and um, uh, striving for excellence, those, those character strengths within us that actually are already good and intact and how to leverage them. We're going to talk about how you increase optimism, which in, in one direction I'll be talking about how you elevate optimism, and in another direction we'll be talking about how you decrease pessimism, you know, how you sort of soften uh, negative thought habits. For example, Many of us, I don't know about you guys, but many of us tend to be the kind of people who sometimes jump to conclusions or we tend to catastrophize or oh, we no, take things no, personally. No. And it turns out those negative ways of thinking and behaving actually don't serve us in the long run. So how do we decrease the frequency and the intensity of, of catastrophizing, for example, and replace it with something slightly more positive? Right. And being pessimistic can be very habit-forming, just... You know, always looking at the downside can be, I don't know why, it's not its not satisfying, but it certainly is habit-forming. You know, I had the most wonderful instruction from a mom who was losing her teenage daughter to uh, cancer years ago. She, she was just seemed buoyant with happiness and optimism, even as her daughter was preparing to die. And I asked her about it, and she said, well, I, I was raised a sort of, perfect pessimist. I always saw the glass half full, and then I realized not only was it making me sort of miserable to be around, it was making me miserable inside, and I didn't want to be that mom when I had children. And so she said one of the questions she's learned to ask herself through the years is, where's the funny? Like in this, even as dark as it is, where's the funny? And that shifts her out of that pessimism into a, a kind of more buoyant optimism. Just, you know, her own unique, particular way of figuring out, this isn't helping me feel resilient, pessimism, so I'm going to move toward optimism. That's a good catchphrase, where's the funny? Yeah, yeah. I like that. It's a good t-shirt, too. There's a well-med physician in in San Antonio. Barbie Lopez is her name, and Dr. Lopez uh, is the most upbeat, positive uh, person you would ever meet literally in your entire life. And I asked her one day, uh, she was co-hosting a show with me. I said, Barbie, have you always been like this? And the answer would shock you. She said, no. Uh, Into my teenage years, I was that negative, down, angry young woman. And I hated it. And finally, I said to myself one day, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to be happy. And she is. Yeah, I actually had the same kind of... um growth trajectory myself, and one of the things that the research supports, and some of us know this intuitively, some of us have to learn along the way, happiness, resilience, these are choices. They are neither God-given nor fully encoded in our DNA. I mean, some of us have a, a, a DNA that leans more toward pessimism than optimism, and they're absolutely choices. We can choose at any time, no matter how difficult our life is. We can choose at any time to move toward those things that really strengthen and nourish us. Let me uh, ask you real quick before we run out of time. For folks who want to attend uh, the workshop and, and your talk, March 2nd and 3rd, uh, how do they do that? So um, the website is the uh, SACompassion.net. Uh, you know what? I yeah. had it. SACompassion.net. So, uh, the Peace Center. Um, 
And, and there's a phone number. Find you. Yeah, we got oh, the. It says to contact the Peace Center. I'm going to their website right now. Well, let me just give the phone number because we're flat out of time, and that would be 210-325-3498. And you can get all the information you want about attending both the March 2nd and March 3rd workshops. Uh, Dr. Maria Sawath, thank you so much for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you both well. And enjoy your trip to San Antonio. I'm looking forward to it. Take care. Bye-bye. Interesting stuff. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernio. We're going to jump to Take 10 in just a moment. Caregiver SOS On Air comes to you on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. This is Sam Donaldson. 50 years in the news business taught me that each day brings a new story. Retirement is just the beginning of a lifelong adventure if we keep learning, stay active, and give back. All secrets to healthy aging. That's what Oasis is about. Explore our history. Take a fitness class. Tutor a child. It's your time to try something new at Oasis. Call 210-236-5954 or oasisnet.org forward slash San Antonio. Well, thank you for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air at the end of each and every one of our programs. We bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist, expert on addictions and caregiving, and our co-host Carol Zernio with us. I'm Ron Aaron. So, Carol, one of the issues, because it's a growing, growing phenomenon, is caregivers thrust into caring for someone diagnosed with dementia. What's the 101? What should they know if you and Dr. Jamie want to pass on the best tips you can think of? Well, the interesting thing is that most people actually don't get an official dementia diagnosis. They don't get the Alzheimer's diagnosis or, you know, whatever is going on, which is interesting. So, you know, the first thing I would tell you is to, you know, to do as much as you can to make sure that you have a diagnosis. Because it may not be dementia. Because it may not be dementia. And, and, And I have known of families to think they were caring for someone who had Alzheimer's when it's low B complex vitamins, it's depression, it's something else that's reversible. So what you want to do is get enough uh, medical workup to determine is this a reversible form of dementia because you know if you've got somebody with a urinary tract infection it can seem like they got Alzheimer's overnight and you don't want to just start making plans and you so, don't get Alzheimer's overnight and your physician may be hesitant to diagnose Alzheimer's or dementia but find out what's going on so that would be my first tip Jamie what would be your first tip well, no, I, I'm 100% in agreement with you that the diagnosis is not made uh, clearly, accurately, um, often enough. And in fact, there's so many conditions which really mirror it, and people just automatically accept and start spiraling down. For instance, like, as you mentioned, depression. Now, deep depression can cause what, what we call pseudo-dementia. And there's a lot of conditions that you just mentioned that creates uh, pseudo-dementia. Now, it is dementia in its behavioral, observable behavior form, but... A good psychiatrist or, or neurologist or whoever you're working with will say if it's pseudo, like you said, reversible and, and part of the condition, or not. And once that's done, then we can start talking, you and I, of course, or this country in a dialogue about you know tips for communicating with this person. But you're spot on. You need to understand first what you're dealing with. Well, let's say the diagnosis uh, comes back, yes, it's dementia. Well, and so what I would 
you know, add on to what Jamie just said is that dementia and depression. So let's say you do have a dementia diagnosis, then you're probably going to you, the caregiver, going to be depressed (laughs) and the care person with the Alzheimer's diagnosis is going to be depressed. Those early stages of dementia are so scary Um, And the person with dementia can feel their memory going. They can feel their brain not working right. Um, And the future is a very scary place for the caregiver. Oh, my gosh, they can't do the same things. i got to watch him. You know, they're going to get lost. Uh, So understand that that in that stage in those early stages it that's probably a place you both need some help because the getting depressed is really common in the early stages. And then to that point, just to add to what Carol says, is that really what you have to do is set a real positive mood for the interaction that's to come. Because just like you said, Carol, it's scary, and and the, the feelings that one has is totally conf- you know confusion. Not just the care receiver, but the, the caregiver. And if you can create a positive mood and a, and a respectful kind of mood, and use facial expressions and tones of voice and and touch, if you will, to convey a message. Um, it's really the way to go. You need to set the stage. And to be frank with you, to, to get to that place of a positive mood, you really need to be taking care of yourself immediately um, if you find out that uh, you're a caregiver no matter what the diagnosis is. Right, and and so I can see where Jamie and I are kind of going up these steps. So he's talking about setting a positive mood. And with a dementia person, setting a positive mood can also mean from the very beginning building on a person's strengths. So this is going to be a long journey, right? Anytime with a dementia diagnosis, you could be talking about 20 years, and 10 years is fairly common. And so what you want to do is help your your loved one stay, you know, do as much as possible for as long as possible. For your mom, that can mean, you know, with my mother, um, at Thanksgiving, I would have her help peel the potatoes. There, She couldn't do a lot of things, but she could still peel potatoes. And so that was when I saw her poking around in the kitchen, I knew here's something that she can do that she can help with. And it made her feel productive. And it made her feel, and she was being helpful. I mean, that wasn't even, it wasn't even made up. <laughs> right. You know, she can knock off five potatoes. Um, and so uh, whatever it is that, you know, your loved one can keep doing, then that can be simplifying tasks. So instead of go get dressed, it can be, you know, allowing a choice. Here's a pink shirt and a purple shirt and a pair of khaki pants. You know, go pick out what you'd like to wear. Well, now you've limited it to, to one pair of pants and a choice of two shirts. And that gives the person satisfaction that they've had input. They, they got to pick what they wanted to wear. But you've simplified the choices. So, it, you know, do you think that helps psychologically, Jamie, to, to help support, you know, that, that feeling of independence for someone with dementia? Oh, yeah. The operative word, as you say, simplify. I mean, as a caregiver, if your loved one has dementia, you have to use simple words and sentences and speak slowly, if you will, um, and, and, and ask simple, answerable questions. So the, not to throw somebody off. Um, you know, that's, that's an important thing. Uh, and but the, the choices that you provide, and you said limited choices or visual prompts or cues that we do, we need to be very mindful um, that this is the best way to approach a, a loved one with dementia, is to keep it simple, as, as Ron and, and 12-step programs would say. Well, and I heard you say, uh, talking about the caregiver taking care of themselves. So what are you going to arm the caregiver with? What should that caregiver be doing for themselves, you know, right from the get-go? Well, if they're listening, uh, really listening to their loved one with their mind, body, and soul, or their ears, eyes, and heart, um, They've got to be open uh, themselves and not blocked with anxiety and and panic and, and fight-or-flight sort of responses. So they have to be taking care of their own mind, their own body, and their own spirit. And we know what that means. They need to do it medically, you know, to make sure they're okay, to take care of their body. Psychologically, I believe they need to be in therapy or at any given point in time have a geriatric care manager or be able to facilitate through a third party. Um, and, and the spiritual slash social side is I think they need to be in a, a support group at all times to be able to reflect their, their experiences and their psyche back with people who totally understand them and have walked that walk. So mind, body, and soul for a caregiver allows us, allows the caregiver, if you will, to actually set that positive mood and to be able to, to speak without elevating, getting angry, or panicking. 
Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Take 10 on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We end each of our programs with Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Talking about tips for the caregiver who has just learned about a diagnosis of dementia for that care recipient. Well, and you know, thinking about what else the caregiver might need, I, information is power. So whatever that dementia diagnosis, if it's Alzheimer's, if it's Lewy bodies, if it's Crutchfeld-Jakob, which I was hearing a really scary radio interview yeah. on someone uh, with that form of dementia, um, and, and, and and that's another one, that no treatment and very fatal. Right. Um, so That's a real upper. But, but, but you know, knowing what's going to happen. So Alzheimer's, slow, slow progression. Lewy bodies, not the same thing as Alzheimer's. You know, that's Robin Williams had that. Much more paranoia, a lot more behavioral problems. Um, and Crutchfeld-Jakob, uh, you know, is a disease that progresses and the person dies within a matter of months. You would want to know that as a caregiver. So arming yourself with medical information. Arm yourself with information about supports in the community. And arm yourself with those helpful people that Jamie just mentioned, that, that geriatric care manager or that support group. And where do you find yeah, one? And I, Jamie, I'll where would you find a geriatric caregiver? Uh, uh, I'm sure Carol can answer it better than I, but I, I'd always go to the Area Agency on Aging, or as I mentioned to everybody, go to Psychology Today, put your zip code in, and people's vitas and resumes pop up, and those who work with seniors will be right there in front of you. So Psychology Today. Yeah, Psychology Today. I want to add to what Carol said, which is extremely important, uh, as she, you know, recounts to us the different types of dementias, always remember that, and this, this is sad because I, I kind of fall in this category, too, about short-term memory. Um, pe- people, obviously, with dementia uh, have a short-term memory issue, so you don't want to ask things necessarily around short-term things, but remember the good old days. Always be able to process a memory because they can remember what happened 40, 45 years ago often. And the next thing, and maybe the best advice I could possibly give is, as you do deal with the memories also, maintain your sense of humor. And not at the person's expense, but you right. know, retain the same social skills that you have and, and try as a caregiver. And the care receiver, I think, will follow to maintain that sense of humor. There's nothing more important than that. Bingo. Out of time. That was perfect. A uh, great way to put a capper on this, Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.